Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. So in this conversation, it's a special one because it is with one of my mentors, Dr. Alison Ormsby. In this episode, Alison shares her expertise in human ecology and some of her fascinating research projects on sacred forests in Ghana, India, and Sierra Leone. We also talk about her research at parks in Madagascar and Belize. Among other things, we also cover various topics, which include how to manage eco-grief. It's something that many of us experiencing, rather, and are always looking for ways to kind of manage that. We also talk about some of her observations of how her students have changed over the past two decades that you just, you got to listen to. And of course, Alison, being the professor that she is, she shares some great advice on how to build a successful environmental profession. So without further ado, let's get into the conversation. Hope you enjoy it. Tell us a little bit about what is human ecology and how did you come or rather become interested in this field? Okay. Human ecology is the study of people in nature and how people in nature interact. Sometimes it's also called social ecology. And I first, probably a pivotal moment in me getting involved in this topic is when I was in the Peace Corps way back when in Sierra Leone, and I was working with people in parks. So looking at how people that live next to a protected area interact with it and the whole process of setting up a park and the involvement or lack of involvement of local communities. And so ever since then, I've been interested in how people interact with nature in many different ways. What are some of the highlights that you've, you've observed in human nature interaction? Well, as far as parks go, that's kind of a long story, but the establishment of parks globally historically involved the exclusion of people. So there's, it's been quite problematic. So it's interesting to look at different examples and there's lots that's been written about this. So for me, I'm interested in community involvement and how communities are really actively, could be actively involved in the decision-making about using plants and animals that are found in these park areas and how perhaps they could be sustainably used or the community could be involved in managing the spaces rather than have external agencies managing the areas. So there are indigenous and community conserved areas now. So the whole field has changed over the past hundred years, I would say. Yeah. And some of that, if I understand correctly, some of that is uh, part of your research on sacred forests, correct? Yeah. So then actually when I was living in Sierra Leone, that was the first time I learned about sacred forests. So it was really interesting because the park I was working with and the community I was living in, there were sacred forests around the community. And so these are areas that are community protected. They're not government protected. And they are protected by the community for for cultural reasons. So maybe due to some kind of belief system or something special about that forest. And so it was back then that I first saw this forest being protected and it was amazing. And since then, I was very interested in the topic of sacred forests. And they are also found globally 
and are protected for different reasons. But some of the places that have a lot of them are, are places like India and Ghana. So since, since that time when my first interest in human ecology started, now I'm working more on sacred forests, more than parks. So I'm very interested in this community, sort of community-driven conservation. Yeah, it's an interesting topic. And I recently came across a story in the newspaper in, when I was in Kenya, and it was about sacred forests and how they're currently being, or historically being used for practices of female genital mutilation. That is true. Yes. yes. So this is like, you've just brought up one of the complicated aspects. So in West Africa, in the, some sacred groves like in Sierra Leone, and maybe the Kaya Forest of Kenya. So there are societies, community groups that do use the forest for rites of passage, both for men and women. And so this is sort of a human rights debate going on right now. So yes, it's true that, that circumcisions do take place in the forest. Very complicated and encourage listeners to read up about it, read a variety of sources. But one of the questions is if circumcisions were banned or if this practice stopped, would the forest have the same sacredness? Would they still be protected because that social rite of passage would no longer be practiced? So it's an interesting, complicated conversation that's going on right now, globally. That is interesting because from the article that I read, you know, FGM is banned in Kenya. And mm -hmm. so they're trying to crack down on these illegal practices. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, the communities in this particular story wanted to be more a part of protecting the forest grove. But I think they were still in discussions with the Kenya Forest ministry on mm -hmm. how they would go about doing that because in Kenya, we still have this practice of keeping people out of parks. Yes. So, so that's a dangerous direction that some of the conversations going is some people have proposed that these sacred forests be brought into the park system. So one thing I look at is who's managing the spaces and who has the power and the authority to manage them. So if they are shifted to, say, a government, like a forest agency, that often takes the power away from the community and completely shifts the, the purpose of the place and the management. So personally, I'm kind of opposed to shifting it to government, government management. There are cases of co-management, like in India, there's some co-managed sacred forests, but it's, it's quite complicated. And it's, there's no one answer for all the sacred forests around the world. Right. Yeah. I was even surprised to actually know that FGM is still oh, yeah. widely practiced in Kenya. I, I'm surprised about Kenya because you hear more about West Africa. Mm -hmm. But there are so many factors and yes, it's, it's quite complicated. But there's been some good documentaries about it and lots of writing happening. Yeah, we'll um, definitely include some of those in our okay, show notes. Okay. That would be helpful okay. for those who want to learn more about it. So mm -hmm. just why I'm really excited to, to have a conversation with you is because we've had many such conversations because mm -hmm. you were my mentor at Eckerd College and mm -hmm. we've kind of maintained our relationship mm -hmm. over the past, I would say now, 17 years or so. I know, um, yes. <laughs> and it was, I think for me, a blessing having a mentor who had international experience working on environmental issues and was also or is rather familiar with Kenya and in India, which are like both of my backgrounds. So mm. it was rare to have 
that kind of experience in one person (laughs) and not even my academic mentors. So, and then to just have that kind of guidance into the, the profession, because I came from a community where we didn't even really know that it was a profession or even Mm -hmm. what you do with it, you know? Mm -hmm. So having that kind of guidance was I think for me, uh, somehow I just got lucky with that. What I'd like to know a little bit more about your background is how did you come to making this decision to pursue your PhD and become a professor? What was that journey like? Um, Yeah, well, it was a little unexpected. Yeah, so I think having mentored many students over the past 17 years, I think sometimes students and their parents have this vision of a very linear career path, but that that doesn't happen anymore. People change careers a lot. And so I did have a very diverse career path, all environmental, but lots of different aspects of the environmental field. So I've worked in nonprofit environmental groups. I've been a journalist. I've done a lot with environmental education. And so I had been doing different jobs and got a master's And then I had a job where I was doing some work in Papua New Guinea, actually, with teachers in Papua New Guinea. And um, I found out about a really unique doctoral program through Antioch New England University. And so for that, at Antioch, I was able to start incorporating some of the work I was doing in Papua New Guinea into a PhD. But at that point, I was just doing it out of curiosity, not really because I wanted to become a professor. It wasn't like my goal was, you know, I had Mm. this vision to become a professor. It was, I was just kind of doing interesting things. And then I realized upon completion of the PhD, which actually ended up focusing on Madagascar, not Papua New Guinea, I realized, wow, now I've positioned myself to become a professor. I had been doing environmental education, so it wasn't a big stretch because I was, had been an educator my whole professional career. But yeah, I just kind of found myself being a professor and, and it was a great fit for my interests and skills. So... So it was kind of a, a winding path, actually. Yeah. I totally forgot that you were a journalist in the past and have done yes. other things. That's I've just right. known you as, you know, Professor Ormsby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what were you doing yeah. in um, Papua New Guinea? What was your, your I was focus um, leading teacher training workshops about ecology through an organization called the Wildlife Conservation Society, mm. who has conservation projects there, but also education programs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. PNG is fascinating in that it mm-hmm. there's so many different tribes in PNG and each one mm-hmm. of them is kind of very unique in their own way and a lot of people don't know about PNG the culture there so is there That's anything true. like interesting that you can share with us about what you <laughs> learned from them well I, I you're right and i think i mean one thing people should appreciate is the language diversity so Papua New Guinea probably has the highest language diversity per area of any place in the world. Mm. So I think that's really amazing and interesting. It's also under a lot of threat from mining companies. So yeah, I think it's very overlooked and could use some international support in terms of, again, community conservation. One interesting thing about Papua New Guinea is the land rights. Most land is held communally. So groups make communal decisions about land use. However, mm. the government owns the mining rights. So the community owns the surface property, but the government owns the subsurface. So that's complicated, but it's, it's a very interesting place. It's a very interesting place. Yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Huh, interesting. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I'm kind of 
daring to go a little bit into the rabbit hole here, <laughs> but if yeah. the community has surface rights and the government mm-hmm. has, I guess, underground rights, mm-hmm. undersurface rights. So if they find a mine that's on a communally owned space, do they have a right? Does the government have a right to kind of seize that land? I mean, they're supposed to get community permission, but I think there's been some some problems. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or, you know, then the, sometimes deals are made with certain members of the community without consensus. So it's supposed to be a consensus decision, but it, not, it isn't always. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll get back on track here. Okay. That's a... So <laughs> That's we're still talking about yeah. kind of <laughs> how your journey kind of evolved mm-hmm. to becoming a professor. Once you were a professor, what did you like about it? Or what do mm-hmm. you like most about being a professor. Yeah. I mean, I love it. I love my job. That's why I've been doing this for 17 years. I love working with students and I think it's really fun and it helps keep me current on all the environmental issues because students are so curious and um, doing research. I love working with my student assistants like you. And I like the combination of being in the classroom and also doing research. So, you know, it is, it is a privilege to be an academic so that you have a nine-month contract so you're paid for nine months, but then you have three months, quote unquote, off, but that's the time you're supposed to be doing research. So it is kind of stressful because you're supposed to write grants and keep publishing, but I do like it. And I think it's, it's really interesting to have sort of more longer term studies and to see how things change. I do also enjoy going to conferences. So hearing about what people are up to and sharing research results, um, going to conferences with students, mentoring students. It's very interesting and and diverse, you know, diverse kind of... I teach a lot of different classes. So I... In one way, that's hard because I have to keep up on all the information about all these different topics. But on the other hand, it doesn't get stale or stagnant at all. Yeah, it's a pretty, like you said, a diverse profession in that you're, mm-hmm. you're interacting with students, you're mentoring them, and then you're also keeping up with your area of interest as well as the the content, which I think a lot of professions kind of stagnate after mm-hmm. a little while because, yeah. you know, you get your degree, you get into a, into the job and you kind of, there, there's some sort of like mundaneness to the work. And it's rare that we're ever required to get new information for the jobs that we're doing. I think I've, I've felt that definitely in certain parts of my career where I felt like I wasn't bringing anything new or I wasn't, I I didn't have an opportunity to get new information. And I was just kind of like working on old, Mm -hmm. stale stuff. (laughs) What kind of methods of teaching have you found to be most helpful? Hmm. Yeah. So I like an interactive teaching style and I really like applied topics. So I'm not a philosopher. I'm I think theory is important, but I like applied. I like applying theories. So I like looking at real life examples, um, examples from around the world, as you mentioned. So I think geography is really important. And I think cross-cultural experience is also really important. Um, so I do like leading study abroads when possible. And I just like bringing in real life examples into the classroom. Um, and I also like student-directed learning. So I often have students give presentations um, or lead parts of the class because I think that's, I think, well, I think presentation skills are important as well as writing skills. So those are all key elements of the courses I teach. Mm -hmm. What are some of your, the favorite courses you've taught 
over the years? I do teach a class about sacred natural sites. So that's mm. basically about sacred forests. <laughs> yeah. I'm teaching wildlife policy right now. You've uh, taken classes with me like ecotourism or protected areas. So those are some of my favorites. And of course, environmental education. And more recently, I'm teaching a class on citizen science, or you, mm. some people call it participatory science. So huh. yeah, I've taught like maybe 15 different classes. Wow. I know. It's a lot when you add it up. Oh, I just recently taught ethnobotany also. That was very interesting. Huh. Yeah. What is Mm -hmm. ethnobotany? Ethnobotany, back to people in nature, is um, the interaction of people and plants. Plants, okay. Ethnobotany, yeah. So how do people use plants? Maybe medicinally or in rituals? Lots of different uses. Ah, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're very much into plants as well. I do like plants, yes. <laughs> I, I just yeah. have trouble identifying trees correctly, as you know. <laughs> well, everybody um, should be able to ID at least 10 of their local trees or plants. Oh no, I don't even know yeah. one. <laughs> well, you will. In Columbus, at least. I'll teach you. Yeah, it's good. So I really enjoyed taking the ecotourism course when I was in Eckerd because it was an opportunity for for me to learn about what is ecotourism and then coming Mm -hmm. from Kenya where tourism is kind of the backbone of our economy to learn about different ways that we can create a sustainable kind of model for visitors to interact with a natural environment and to kind of do their research before they go into a new place so that they know how to respect it and conduct themselves accordingly. And at that point, I was really interested in what India could do. And so I I was doing research on this ecotourism in India. And and I was really surprised to find this lodge in in Rajasthan. Mm -hmm. That's all I remember. So the story is kind of going nowhere. (laughs) Well, Um, I'll reinforce that. I'm happy that you brought this up because I do think it's so important that people do research before they travel. And it's shocking to me how few people do and how, I mean, at least read, you don't even have to read a book, but that would be nice. Read a few articles so you know the cultural and language groups you're going, you know, where, where you're traveling and, and you research the, the places you're staying and you try to support a locally owned lodge rather than a multinational corporation. It's really easy to do a little research and be a responsible traveler rather than just right. not thinking about it. No, I completely agree. I, I think it makes your experiences when you're in that community richer you just understand the nuances a little bit more and have an opportunity to have uh, more wholesome interactions with the local community if you do your research ahead of time. Absolutely. I know. It's just such a better experience for everybody. Yeah. But, you know, like typical tourism has always been like you get a tour guide, you know, a tour company, you get into your car from the airport into the car and to whatever location and it's, like the, the the interactions with the local community are quite limited in that sense. Yes. Well, actually, that reminds me of a current research project that I'm on, which is looking at homestays. So mm. one way that you can give back to the community and have a more authentic interaction is by going to a homestay and actually staying with a family. It's not for everybody. Yeah. But I think it can be great. So yeah. Anyways, we'll move on from that. Just going back to our conversation about interacting with students, have you noticed any trends or patterns 
with the students you've interacted with over you know the past two decades or so? <laughs> wow. Yes, I have, as a matter of fact. It's very interesting because we're over By the, the way, past... I didn't mean to make it so... I know. Sorry. It, it, I felt like forever, but it is almost two decades. Wow. <laughs> Once you do the math. Yeah. So there, the things have been changing, right? There's been um, a lot of technology change. Everyone has a phone now, an iPhone usually, or you mm-hmm. know, handheld. And there's a lot of distractions, right? So yeah. I'll just throw out that there's, there are books about nature deficit disorder. We're spending a lot less time in nature. We meaning mostly in the U.S. And it shows, right? It shows in attention span. It shows in, in plant blindness, right? Or, uh, you know, immersion in nature, awareness of nature, and an ability to focus in the classroom. Mm-hmm. So in my classrooms, I have technology-free classrooms. I do use PowerPoint, but I don't allow students to have laptops or phones in class, but some professors do. And yeah, I'm just finding a shorter attention span, higher levels of anxiety, actually. I mean, we know with the climate disaster that we're experiencing that there's a lot of Mm eco-anxiety and there's also a lot of pressure on students. So it's just interesting to see the shift. I will say, you know, I love environmental studies students and that's what I mostly teach. So environmental studies students are still pretty much the same. They're flexible and willing to go outside, love going outside and generally have a great attitude. So, and are willing and and realize that they're going into a field where they might not be that well-paid, but they're going to love what they do. And they just are great. Yeah. So, so you know, in some ways things have changed, but in some ways they're they're the same. Yeah, but there have been some changes. Interesting. I, I wonder if we had, if our cohort, I guess, had. I know I've definitely had anxiety about environmental mm-hmm. disasters. I still feel it, and mm-hmm. I've been reading um, a few articles about how to manage eco grief and find ways to kind of channel that into something more constructive. But with just daily news of, you know, the Australian fires or the fires in Mm -hmm. Brazil, which we didn't even see as much media coverage as we are seeing about the Australian fires. True, true. Yeah, and then with the the floods in in Indonesia and the volcano Mm -hmm. erupting in the Philippines, I'm like, when is it going to end? It's like an apocalypse that we're experiencing. Well, I think this is the importance of self-care. So Japan has a lot of sacred groves, Shinto shrine forests, and the idea of forest bathing comes from Japan. And so I think I'm lately getting into, I mean, obviously I've always been into forest bathing. I love taking a walk in a forest. But I do think that it's important that we recognize that we are getting bombarded with negative media a lot and, and sort of climate disaster and negative images, not solution stories or conservation successes, but usually negative things. And it's important to take care of ourselves and to spend time in nature to recharge and appreciate the beautiful things around us. Yeah. I try to go into nature as much as possible. And nature doesn't necessarily have to be this pristine space, but just out of my house and taking walks and just observing the birds, the trees that I now need to learn about. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just like, what are you? Are you a cedar? But yeah, that's that's on my list of things to do is figure out the trees in my neighborhood. Let's go to the part about your, your research and how you collaborate, because I think this is a big part of kind of what you do when people like professors kind of, it's, it's, it's a big part of their, their, their profession, essentially. So it's, it's really cool that you've always found a way to collaborate with other environmentalists in 
the US and in different parts of the world. How do you do that? Well, I think it's really important, as I mentioned, that that you talk to people and that you listen mm-hmm. and you don't think that you're the expert all the time. So when I work, especially in another country, it takes a long time to set it up thoughtfully. And so I do reach out to, through connections that I have or when people I meet at conferences and reach out to set up the groundwork and do all my research ahead of time. So reading articles about the place I'm going and books. And then when I get to a place, I, I often have to work with a translator. So it takes quite a long time to find a translator who understands the research goal and is willing to work with me. And of course, I pay them. And so that's how it's happened in, in many places like Ghana. In Sierra Leone, I already had contacts. In India, I'm forever indebted to people I met through the internet. So there's ways to track research that people are doing. And I really like this platform called ResearchGate. Mm-hmm. So ResearchGate is like an academic LinkedIn. So you can follow people and you can learn about, for me, people that are doing work on sacred forests. And you can also just find, as you read articles, you start to recognize names. And you can usually just email people and they're generally pretty nice and will respond to you. Mm. So um, I've met a lot of people through ResearchGate or just by emailing to reach out to folks. Yeah, that's really cool. I it's It's always just been looking at the list of your publications. I'm just like, how does she find these people? <laughs> they find me too. Right now <laughs> I'm working true. with two people in India that just randomly found me through ResearchGate. That's crazy. And it's also a big part of how you find opportunities for collaboration as you go to these conferences as well and you present at them. I sure do. And I think it's important. I mean, one thing ethically, I think it's important, well, first of all, to acknowledge your co-authors and at least in the acknowledgement sections, but maybe as co-authors, depending on the amount of work that you've done collaboratively and to present your results at conferences or to publish your results. A lot of people do research and never publish it. And I understand that is very hard to publish. It takes a lot of time, sometimes years. Mm. But I do think it is important to share share your findings respectfully. Yeah. 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 I just thought about this question and it's about how you pursued or got tenure. I was talking to one professor, Dr. Olivia Aguilar, and she's an environmental education professor who was at Denison University and recently moved to Mount Holyoke. So one of the challenges that she was talking about in our conversation was that getting on the tenure path was a lot more challenging than what she expected or, well, not even what she expected. She just didn't have much information about it. And it also depends on the institution, right? And so I was wondering if you could share with us a little bit about your experiences on the tenure track. Like, what did it look like? Yeah, it does vary by university. However, there are some common things. And I think, again, this is where listening is so important. It's just, it's just always important to ask questions and listen. So usually the pathway is clear, actually. But sometimes people aren't listening. <laughs> so um, usually there's a fa- faculty handbook, wherever you are. And it says what criteria, upon what criteria is tenure-based. And usually it's scholarship. So publishing and getting grants. Mm-hmm. It's your teaching evaluations. So how you're doing your classes. Yeah. It's mentoring. So mentoring students or advising. And it's also service. So what kind of community service are you doing? Or academic service like serving on committees on the campus. And sometimes those aren't weighted equally. So by talking to other faculty members, 
in your department and outside your department, you can find out sort of how they're weighted. And you can also find out, you know, what's the bar? Like how many publications do you need in order to get tenure? Is it one, two, five, you know? So that varies a lot by school and your teaching load varies a lot by school. But it is really important for your course evaluations to show an improvement over, say, the four years before you go out for tenure. So in my case, and, and you have an annual evaluation with your dean of faculty or your provost. So in that evaluation, usually you're getting feedback that might be direct or a little indirect, but if there's suggestions for improvement, you need to show that you're addressing the suggestions. And I just think a lot of people, I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of colleagues go for tenure and I went up for tenure. Um, and it's, it is very stressful, but the pathway is usually fairly clear. And the other thing is being realistic with yourself, because like I said, it could take three or four years to get something published. So that means you have to have a lot of burners going, right? You need to, you right. actually, need, for me, I try to submit one or two articles a year. And that means that I, you know, by the time I went up for a tenure, I had submitted quite a few articles and not all of them got published, but at least I had redundancy, I guess. So I right. could make sure that some of them got published. Yeah. Um, I think there's also in, in that conversation, there was also like the directions might be clear cut, but like what you were alluding to that, you know, in your conversations with the provost, it may be that they're giving you feedback. It could be direct or indirect. And those are the type of like nuances that I guess it takes time for either you kind of get it or you don't, or it'll take you time to kind of read between the lines. But that's unfortunate because as, you know, academics, I would, I would, you know, expect that we were more direct with each other about what's expected of each other. Yeah, I know it's it's unfortunate, but the committees are changing, you know, maybe even year to year and mm-hmm. the provost might be changing. Maybe the handbook's getting revised. You know, these, it, unfortunately, things are in flux. So that's why I think it's always good to talk to a lot of people and just yeah. be nice, be friendly, be a good citizen of your campus community and do the work. And then, you know, ask for feedback, you know, have people observe your class, ask for feedback. Yeah. So yeah. I know it's exhausting. I, I was exhausted, <laughs> but you know, it's possible, but you, but it is a lot of work. Yeah. yeah. And the fruits are, are great or mm-hmm. at the end of the, the line. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, some, <laughs> yeah. every, every university is different. Some of them have a post-tenure review. So some yeah. of them you keep getting evaluated, others don't. Yeah. So yeah, it is kind of a weird profession where you could get tenure and then sort of coast after that. So, you know, some people criticize academia because of that. But mm-hmm. every place is different and every person's different. Yeah. And not every profession is perfect in a sense. Like, we have to read between the lines in most of our professional or even like personal experiences. But it's just having the skills of really getting down to or pulling out or the core of the information that somebody is trying to communicate with you. So this kind of like segues into our conversation about skills that have been useful for you. You know, you mentioned some of the I guess skills that you've used when you were getting tenure is just listening, talking to as many people as possible and getting involved in your community. Those are good recommendations, but are there any other additional skills that you think have helped you along your journey to becoming successful? Um, Yeah, certainly organization, Mm -hmm. right? So um, keeping a schedule, being realistic about your schedule, not overcommitting, which I do have a problem with, but trying to prioritize, you know, what's most important for you and what, you know, in a job, what 
what's top priority that you have to get done. And also for your personal ethics. Like what's like for me right now, volunteering is really important to me. So I prioritize some of my volunteer work. And same with students, you know, I, just being organized is just really important. I just can't <laughs> emphasize that enough. And then setting realistic goals. So like for each year, you know, what are, what are your top goals for that year? And then just work toward them and kind of keep checking in with yourself. Yeah. Do you have any recommendations on tools people can use to get themselves organized? Because so I have a lot of projects going on at once and I think I just kind of set myself in, to be in a situation where I'm overwhelmed. But for this year, what I what I've done is I've just put down all of my ideas on a whiteboard. And those are like goals that I want to achieve in my work, my business, personally, and just other stuff. Or do you have any tools that you use to organize your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I mine's really basic, like a list, right? So I have like 10 articles I'm working on and I have a list of them. And I'm, but also behind, you know, I have that list, but I know, you know, some of them are like book projects that are going to be multi-year for sure. Mm. So Again, like I said, I try to do one to two or submit one to two articles a year. So of those 10, I can say, okay, which are the two that I'm most likely to advance to the point mm-hmm. of submission? And then I focus on those. I think another thing, you know, some people use Google Calendar, but at least some kind of calendar. I mean, it shocks me how many of my students don't own a calendar. Like they don't have a paper calendar, they don't have a Google calendar in their phone or whatever. There's just nothing. They're just relying on memory. <laughs> like yeah. that is definitely not gonna work. And in your email, you know, we are inundated with with all this stuff, social media, email, blah, blah, blah. So within your email, keep folders. Again, it shocks me how few people have folders. So it's like all that is visual clutter. It's like get that out of your site yeah. uh, because that stresses you out too. So yeah, calendar, lists or the whiteboard and folders. And I also have folders in my real life, like because I'm kind of old school, so I have like paper folders. But that means I can find things. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. And then when I teach a class, like I'm teaching a class I haven't taught in four years, I just go back to my binder on the class. Everything's good to go. I'm ready. Yeah. And I also have Google folders, right? I have a Google Drive with... And I do think, oh, speaking of, like if there's any grad students out there, you have to back everything up. So definitely having things in the cloud, you know, having your paper copy, but also having it somewhere, email it to yourself or have it in a drive, please do it. Yeah. Thanks I can't that. tell you how many times. <laughs> I don't know how we survived before we had the cloud because yeah, I guess them. we just lo- we lost, we lost them. Yeah, it was bad. <laughs> <laughs> we lost time. Yeah, was, we did lose. We redid a lot of things. Yeah. It was horrendous. But yeah. uh, thanks, mm-hmm. cloud tech yeah. people. Yeah. What are, you know, in the same vein, what are some of the resources that have helped you in your journey? I mean, certainly some people, you know, mentors. So now when I recently started a new job, I just look for who would be a good mentor for me. Even though it's not official, um, I'm much more assertive now about going out to coffee with people and just asking them for their advice. So I always have mentors in my life. I spend time with people that I enjoy. So I think that's really helped me along the way. And then these conferences, like maybe one conference a year is really rejuvenating. It's very exciting and fun to go learn new stuff. Yeah, I think with the the conferences, I I enjoy them because I get to learn about the different projects that people are involved in. And I meet new people who have different areas of interest, which I think is, like you said, rejuvenating. One thing that you mentioned about mentorship is kind of piqued my interest here because mentors are an important part of 
our development. And I was just wondering, what do you look for in a mentor? And how then do you mentor as well as a professor? Oh, that's such a good question. I look for, again, somebody so organized mm-hmm. and, and actually someone who's a little bit assertive, like politely assertive, um, which I hope I am. <laughs> so I'm looking, yeah, for someone that will give me feedback and also listen because a lot of people like to talk about themselves and not listen. Mm-hmm. So I find somebody that's, that you know, has been around the block and has been in a position for long enough to have noticed the nuances, know who the players are and, and is organized so they can share resources with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I try to do the same thing for my students. I've mentored hundreds of students over the years. And I try to listen to my students. And I have a lot of career experience. So I try to share with them resources like listservs, job listservs, networking opportunities, graduate school funding. You know, There's all this funding out there that goes maybe ungiven or I don't know. There's, there are opportunities. So for me, mentoring is about bringing out the most potential in students. Like there, I have a lot of students who are never told like, you have so much potential, you should go for it. So trying to like encourage them to take some risks and put themselves out there and, and then go after all these opportunities. Mm-hmm. That's really good advice. So in terms of sort of the premise of the, the podcast is to get inspiration and be inspiring. What kind of advice would you give to inspire your friends and family to be a part of this environmental movement because I think we need to not make like the word environmentalism. We need to make it an undirty word. <laughs> and we all really need to be environmentalists, especially with climate change just hitting us in our faces here. What is some of the the things that you suggest we can kind of work with our family and friends? Yeah. So I think, I mean, obviously, or hopefully we all want to have clean air. We want to be able to drink water and eat food. (laughs) So we all make decisions in our daily lives and it should not be overwhelming. We just have to pick like one thing to do, like each day, what's one thing we can do? Mm -hmm. And I think these small changes actually do make a difference. So some people kind of check out and are like, ah, it doesn't matter. It actually matters. It matters a lot. So there's so many things we could do in our daily lives. Things like reducing plastic, right? So thinking about your purchasing behavior, trying to avoid plastic, also eating less meat. I'm just going to say that. Mm-hmm. You know, meat is very harmful for the environment. So phasing down on your meat consumption and also eating locally. So supporting your local farmers. It doesn't matter where you are. There are going to be some local farmers. You can join a CSA. So you can get a share or half share in community-supported agriculture. That's a farm share. Mm -hmm. Every place almost has one. I mean, here, well, certain cities have lots of them. So joining a CSA, I think is really great. Or just supporting a local farmer's market. So trying to minimize your food miles. Being locally and in season, you know, don't buy stuff that's coming from another continent if you can avoid it. (laughs) Yeah. So just being really aware about your daily life activities. And supporting, so remember we vote with our dollar every time we buy something. So supporting public transit, supporting local food movements, supporting your local environmental organizations, maybe volunteering with them. All those kinds of things. Knowing where your food comes from, where your water comes from, and where your trash goes. Yeah. Um, All of these matter. They truly do. And I've had some conversations with friends where they're like, we want to do the right thing, and but it's just really overwhelming. So I think it's just 
yeah, there are all these things that we can do as individuals. And I think it's just starting off small, you know, making the simplest decisions if you can just eat one vegetarian meal. Yeah, this whole meatless Mondays movement or mindful Mondays. But yeah, it's really, it's not that hard. And there's lots of role models out there. So you can follow a blog or something on Instagram if you want, if you need ideas. But there's definitely lots of role models. Oh yeah, Instagram has so many great influences who provide, in my opinion, some practical advice on what, you know, the everyday lay person can do to reduce their impact on the environment. So, you know, I know I keep going back to this theme of you being an educator. So what advice would you give to somebody who's wanting to enter the the environmental profession? You mentioned earlier, you know, people are taking this path, not necessarily because of the money, but because they're passionate about it. But, you know, at the end of the day, we do need to find a way to like sustain ourselves reasonably, right? So that's true. However, this is another change I've seen in my students is I think you need to be realistic about the pathway and that you do have to pay some dues before you get the really awesome job. Right. So my advice would be do volunteer and do internships. So, you know, starting out maybe even a high school volunteer with a local environmental organization, get to know the organizations in your town. Then as a college student, do summer internships either in your town or your state or even anywhere in the whole country or even internationally. And for the US, the, a great group is the Student Conservation Association, SCA. Yeah. So that you, know, you can volunteer or intern in a national park and that's somewhat paid. So there's all these opportunities. And so by the time you graduate from university, you already have you know, four summers of experience. Um, There's also a program called Research Experiences for Undergraduates, REU. So if you're more science-y and you want to do a research experience, that it pays well for the summers. So instead of not doing anything with your summers and then graduating with a resume that's blank, it's really competitive out there now. So students really need to be getting this job experience. And again, through these volunteer or intern experiences, you're going to meet mentors, you're going to get advice, and then you're going to be ready to know better what kind of job you want to pursue. Once you graduate. Yeah. That's that's really good advice. And that was during the internship every summer was one of the advice that you gave me way earlier on. So that was really helpful because by the time I graduated, I could say that, okay, I've had experience working in diverse environments in Kenya and India on various issues. So that was really helpful. It wasn't like a shock to me once I did make a formal entry into the, the workplace. All right, so then we're we're reaching kind of the end of our conversation here and we'll get into the lightning round. Okay. Uh, so the first question here is, what have you read, heard, or watched lately that has influenced you the most? Oh, gosh. I mean, I love reading. I just love it. I read a lot. I'm teaching a class right now about sustainable culture, which we can oh. we could discuss what that even means. I don't know. <laughs> but so for that, I'm reading um, Unbowed by Wangari Mathai. Mm-hmm. I'm requiring it for my students. So that's interesting. I'm reading a book or I'm requiring a book by Muhammad Yunus about the Grameen Bank and micro-lending. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, Vandana Shiva or Vandana Shiva. So we're reading Earth Democracy. So um, those are the course books that, that I'm requiring but yeah, I always like to read before I travel, like I said, about... So I've just... I read all the time. I, I, I don't want to single out any books. And then for... I like watching movies. 
But again, I'm nothing's jumping into my mind to single out at this moment. Yeah, I think you mentioned you you recently watched the movie about the the water, the environmental lawyer, and uh, oh, I did. I think it's called Dark Rivers or Black Rivers. Dark, dark, dark water. water. I don't. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That might be something else. But you know the one about water contamination. Yeah, yeah, it's really heartbreaking, and I really do think that. Well, this is perfect for you, but I think topic of the future is water. It's just mm-hmm. water. So. It's really heartbreaking to me when we pollute our groundwater. I mean, there's no turning back. So yeah, yeah that one with Mark Ruffalo, whatever the proper name of it is, was very moving and I would yeah. recommend it to everybody. Yeah. yeah. Oh, um, I have a positive one. Fantastic fungi. Just saw fantastic <laughs> fungi. Amazing. Everyone should see that. Yep. <laughs> I'm guessing it's about there fungi. It is. All about mushrooms and stuff. It's great. That's really cool. We'll include a link as well in the show notes. All right. The next question is, what's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? Wow. I mean, I think it's this organization thing where I try to respond to email. It drives me crazy when people don't respond to email. (laughs) So I think it's nice and polite to actually respond within like, say, three days. Yeah. So that's something. So trying to be like respectful and responsive, being available to my students. And also having fun, right? Like self-care. So going out to coffee with friends and going on hikes. Yeah. So all that balance. Indeed, indeed. It's not very easy to get. But what I'm learning about what balance means to me at least is it doesn't have to be that I'm working, you know, eight hours and then four hours I'm relaxing or whatever. It could be that I'm working really hard for like two days and then taking a day off. In a sense. So balance doesn't necessarily have to be like this traditional idea of like how you allocate your hours in a day. It could be if that's the kind of person you are, but it just all depends on kind of your own personal preference in a sense. What's the best piece of advice you've received? I mean, I don't know about one, but I think for for the ladies out there, negotiate. Mm -hmm. Like don't accept the first offer, negotiate. So I think that's something that took me a while to learn. So I think, you know, being a little bit assertive, finding good role models and valuing your own voice and your experience and speaking up a little bit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's something we didn't really touch on very much is just what it means to be a woman in the environmental space. But I think this is... That's pretty huge. That's a whole other conversation. Yeah. Yeah. We'll probably (laughs) have a part two. Okay. That'd be fine. (laughs) Yeah. All right. And then who is your personal hero? Um, I think it's probably been my mom, actually. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, thinking about it, but you know, any of these great women that broke ground for the rest of us, you yeah. know. Mm-hmm. So yeah. What about what about your mom? Like- well, you know, she grew up in the sort of the housewife era where, mm-hmm. you know, her choices were secretary, nurse, teacher, housewife. And so she was a civic activist. I'm appreciating it more now that I'm involved with local issues. And she went to all these like city council meetings and actually read reports and would testify about them. Huh. I know. I didn't know this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's true. So I value that now and, I'm, and I try to do it. And I think everybody should because local is where there's a lot of action happening and mm-hmm. we all need to get local. So I appreciate now sort of retroactively appreciate how much time she's spent doing that, you know, unpaid. So yeah, I think we, like I said, we all have to be active citizens and participants in local governance 
and local decision-making. Otherwise, other people do it for us. So we do need to be assertive. Yeah, this is true. Mm -hmm. Other people will make a decision for us. Yeah, and and a lot of times they're developers. Or corporations. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, and they have, they do have more power, but if we put our individual voices together, then we have a lot of power too. Yeah. There was this recent article that came out in the New York Times about the five worst banks and how they were like the main contributors to, to climate change and, you know, encouraging people to bank local. That's right. Totally. Yeah. Credit unions are great. Yes. Although I'm kind of struggling with that. I'm going to try and make the transition over from Bank of America. Okay. Be strong. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, oh my gosh, access to ATM. Yeah. Well, you you don't have to do every, you don't, you can do partial. You don't have to do all. That's true. You know? Yeah. That's, you know, people that, that like going vegetarian, you know, people get kind of stuck, but it's like, you don't have to do like a dramatic switch, do a halfway switch. This is true. This is true. I'll just leave like maybe $10 in my bank. <laughs> kidding, kidding. Something, something. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. So that was it. And in conclusion, where can people find you? I think the easiest place is ResearchGate, actually. So most of my articles are there. And yeah. Yeah. I'm there. Okay. <laughs> and then you teach at UNC Asheville. So if somebody wanted to email they can find you... me at LinkedIn. Yeah. yeah. LinkedIn would be the best. LinkedIn. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. And then is there anything else you would like to add? Just best wishes to you. Thank you for this. Of course. It's been a great conversation and I've learned something new about you. How about that? (laughs) Great. Well, thank you. Of course. And thank you so much for your time. And uh, we'll be in touch on the other end. Sounds good. Okay. Bye. Bye. Hey all, thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.